0: You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, Kauai moves into Tier 5 as vaccinations are at a 60% rate for its residents. We talked to Kauai's Managing Director, Mike DeHelig, about the transition and the relaxation of restrictions in the county.
1: You know, the mayor's position throughout the pandemic has been preaching this message of self-responsibility and discipline in terms of health care. The tools are out there to keep people safe, getting vaccinated, Distancing, wearing masks, washing your hands—you know, things that we've been preaching, you know, for the past, you know, year and a half. This tier five shift will allow people to even more so go about their business, allow our businesses also to increase their capacity, but it also is a reminder that, you know, we're not—we're still not out of the woods yet. There are things out there that we got to continue to monitor uh, and and make sure that we are uh, exercising both from a healthcare standpoint and keeping our emergency management apparatus up and running. But we've definitely trimmed down since the shift with our trans-Pacific travel for our residents. Today, we'll see how um, you know the governor's call on vaccination cards for um, you know, non-Hawaii vaccinated individuals coming in from the mainland uh, look like. We'll see how those protocols work today. But I
2: think it, overall, we're, we're
1: looking up. We're, it's optimistic.
0: What's your count, visitor arrivals? You
1: know, we're at and above capacity from when you compare July of 2019 to July of 2021 when it comes to airlift seats. And uh, I just flew recently, and and coming back from Oahu, every single seat on the plane was packed. Wow. So people are flying.
0: You know, we've seen uh, the problems that Maui is having, you know, with the mayor uh, over there calling for, uh, you know, the airlines to Kokua because they're just strained to the hilt.
1: It's the same set of issues that I think we are all facing across the state. When I flew back, I was on Maui last week, actually. It's pretty clear that you know after the pandemic, people's understanding of how tourism impacts our own residents you know, needs to be looked at a lot more dutifully. For us, we've gone through this exercise with programs like KA Beach, which was a great partnership with the state park system, and, and how we um, not only charge what is a fair price for an experience for those that are not residents of Hawaii, but also um, being able to make sure that our environment has the right balance. And so, you know, we're looking at trying to explore more ways where we can um, make sure that there is throttling of our shared resources rather than just having it be a free-for-all. So I know Maui is is going through an exercise with Guaynapa-Napa. We're watching how they're handling that as well. Um, But it is a model I think we need to start more robustly pushing on. And Mayor Kawakami, you know, we'll be having some things announced shortly that reflect, uh, you know, our art service industry's, um, you know, impacts, but also maintaining that balance with the economic activity and recovery that we need.
0: Now, Maui just started the shuttle service from the airport just because, you know, they don't have enough rental cars. Is Kauai considering anything like that?
1: Uh, We've we've actually stood up and been been relying on our private sector to pick up that slack. You know, we know that Polynesian Adventure and those transportation private sector companies uh, that I provide normal service, we're already encouraging them and they are standing up things like more robust travel service. We've, we've seen a lot more Ubers and lifts on the market lately. Um, Turo's are coming on as well. Um, I, I will have to say, though, that even though we probably are at pr- visitor counts close to our pre-pandemic numbers, having the lesser amount of vehicles uh, has actually been a good uh, balance when it comes to um, not having our, our streets and our, our highways jammed. And, uh, and I think that that is going to be the model that we're going to have to push more and more towards is how do we address you know impacts to our residents, and especially when we look at uh, price points of rental cars being at seven $800 a day. You know those, those price points that people are willing to pay you know, it indicates that the, the value of a Hawaiian experience is a lot higher than, than we uh, tend to think.
0: What's the snapshot with uh, the uh, platforms like Toro? Are you getting any complaints about visitors coming into the neighborhood?
1: We've always just had had complaints about visitors coming into neighborhoods in general. In general, um, you know, we've we've been tackling the vacation rental issue for you know close to 15, 16 years here. Uh, so you know, the the, the Turo element is something that we're, we're monitoring closely. But so far, we haven't gotten quite the robust complaints that we did versus you know people moving into. Um, a residential neighborhood as as vacationers in a vacation rental.
0: Talk more about, you know, what this Tier 5 will do. Uh, because, you know, we saw Hawaii close down early, and, you know, you had far more restrictions than the other counties initially, uh, which raised some eyebrows, but you're also opening up first.
1: Right. The, the magic number is 75. So whereas, you know, Tier 4, everything was kind of at a 50% capacity from a rule of thumb, now we're looking at 75. That is what we think is, is, a, is a, a broader balance while maintaining you know, some alertness with uh, the fact that there still is an ongoing pandemic. And in, on top of that, we have our capacity for outdoor groups like weddings and those types of things. We had 25 and 50 in the previous Tier 4. We're not going to 40 and 100 when it comes to indoor and outdoor restrictions. But we also are emphasizing, again, that that, that message of self-care and, and, uh, and discipline in the sense that, you know, we can go north of those numbers if a professional organizer does vaccination checks or... They come to our free uh, testing facility and get a test, you know, 24 hours before an event. So we're relying again on private sector enforcement and, and discipline rather than us running around with a stick. You know, we want people to all buy into the idea that, you know, exercise these very basic things to to keep us safe. And and we think it's it's uh, it's working. You know, we're talking with some concert organizers, and in August we're going to be having you know concerts here on the island that employ some of these best practices like like masking. And, you know, vaccination card checks and those types of things you know, prior to the event actually happening.
0: Talk about what the restaurants are experiencing over there, because on a number of islands, you know, it's tough to get a reservation. There are just long lines because they don't have the personnel to staff the hours that they used to operate at.
1: It, it's, a, it's a combination of capacity and also, you know, we have quite the labor sh- shortage. It, it is a weird recovery where in as much as we have a high unemployment rate, we also have a lot of people that are not jumping into the service sector and, and taking those jobs. So, you know, some a lot of restaurants may be able to ramp up to that capacity of 75%, which would add, you know, essentially from the current operation, 50% more tables than they're operating with now. But whether or not they have the staff or the requisite, you know, manpower to be able to add on that additional capacity, it varies, you know, from, from restaurant to restaurant. So it's, one element that we can help with in terms of um, broadening the amount of capacity but at the same time you know being able to see the immediate effects of this with um, restaurants may be you know uneven given the, the weird labor market that we're seeing on island.
0: So Kauai has what 60 so percent uh, vaccination rate but you've also had a, a couple of clusters recently.
1: Yes and you know the clusters are predominantly those that are, are not vaccinated and, and it comes back to that me- that that basic message the mayor has been preaching over the past you know six months is you know get the vaccinations you know they're they're safe they, they work they're free and there's really no excuse from a sense of not being able to get one they're 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 readily available we have mobile you know, units that have been donated by the, the Chan zuckerberg Kauai fund and that we have three of them running around the island constantly now uh, with with staff that are willing and able to, uh, to give you a an easy shot, but you know those clusters are, are indicative of, of the science that says you know if you're not vaccinated, you're going to be susceptible to getting the disease, and and the statistics aren't aren't lying in that sense. Almost everybody that is getting sick not vaccinated. You know it's good in a sense that we make the psychological shift that we are migrating towards reopening as our um, vaccination rates continue to climb. Balance a reopening with maintaining some of our operations and maintaining a message of discipline and safety. We are open for business. You know, our, our people here are, are very excited to be able to move around. We're also excited that you know our, our little league team will be playing in, on Maui in, in about a week. Uh. Um, so you know, it, it, those those types of things are normalcy, and it's what people want. And you know, we'll be cheering our boys on uh, in in the state tournament. But it's I think a snapshot of that life can be normal. We just had to make a, a few adjustments here or there, but we're we're getting there. We're getting there, and we need everybody's help to tell their friends, neighbors, their family. Um, you know, get the shot if they haven't gotten it yet, because that that just allo- allows us to even open up more.
0: And what are you hearing from the community just about any? I don't know pushback with the, with the onslaught of visitors returning because I mean nobody imagined that it was going to bounce back so fast.
1: Yeah, it's it's um, you know we we went through this experience on a, on like a, a trial basis after the 2018 floods. Uh, and how you know we had a, a portion of the island that was cut off because of the landslides uh, up in on the north shore, and how you know that recovery needs to be balanced with uh, folks that are um, still living in an area, and a lot of the investments that we made, like with Ka Beach, and how we message tourism, seems to be things that we need to now employ the best practice around the island. And so we'll be looking at our parks assets. And we'll be looking at our our shared assets when it comes to other roads, those types of things, to be able to balance the usage with, you know, the cost that it takes and really have it reflect what is the value of a Hawaii experience.
0: That was Mike DeHealy, Kauai County's managing director, talking to us about moving into Tier 5 as the county's vaccination rates have now hit 60 percent. This morning, we also reached out to Maui's Visitor and Convention Bureau to see how the new shuttle service is working over there. It was launched this past holiday weekend in anticipation of Fourth of July travelers and the rental car shortage. Leanne Pletcher is the public relations and marketing director of Maui's Visitor's Bureau. She explains how it works.
3: You know, the rental car availability is still limited, and that's a a big reason why we decided to launch this new shuttle service. And it's also part of the Maui Nui Destination Management Action Plan, and part of that is to improve the transportation experience and the ground travel with those limited options as far as the car rental and also the shared rides. I do know there was a new program launched called holo holo across the islands for the shared ride too uh, which I believe is helping. So uh, but yes, the car rental situation still is challenging and hence we wanted to introduce this program and also to help with the community relations between the community and the visitor to uh, alleviate some of the traffic on the roads with all the rental cars that are being uh, used.
0: And the airport just opened up a, a new facility there, right, for cars?
3: Yes, we did open up a new, it's a new garage with all the car rental companies, and that opened up a couple of years ago. We have a, a trolley that goes from the baggage claim area or across the street from the baggage claim area that takes you down to the car rental facility. So super convenient and we're finding a lot of the visitors are really appreciating that.
0: Okay, and so you've you've had this uh, new shuttle service in place uh, for, you know, almost a week. What's the feedback that you're hearing so far?
3: So far we've had some positive feedback certainly from the visitors who are using it. They're, they're excited to have that option to be able to hop on the bus and go right to the resort. And it's a, it's a pilot program, uh, and Maui Visitors Bureau is helping to subsidize the, the two-week pilot program. So it goes through the 17th. And if it continues, you know, to have great interest and, uh, and they're able to continue it, uh, I think that's what the hope is. So how is the word
0: getting out to these travelers that this uh, is now available?
3: Well, currently, Paliad does have a booth at the airport. And we've reached out to the airlines to communicate it, you know, to their passengers as maybe perhaps they're getting off of the plane. And also we've communicated it to all the hotels that they could communicate that with guests as they're making their reservation. So this would be a little, you know, a little further in the future. We've distributed it through all of our local uh, broadcasts uh, through radio and the press release, uh, getting the word out that way and. So the the key right now is to kind of uh, get the people that are coming off the planes to say, you know, this is an option, especially if they were not prepared with a car rental or they're finding the line or wait on the shared rides or the taxis is is a, too long for them. So I think they're reaching out to those folks too. We'll continue to distribute to the media and to our partners to get the word out.
4: You know,
0: we did talk to Rasagashi over at the. Uh, airport DOT, they are seeing um, uh, this platform, Turo, with the rent-a-cars, peer-to-peer yes. platform. What are you hearing uh, from your end?
3: We, What we're trying to do as far as when people talk about using the Turo and all of those options, we've actually put out, or Hawaii Tourism Authority put out a, a release to give some other options like the Maui public bus or... A holo holo that I mentioned and all the different taxi services so I'm, I'm not I can't really speak to how popular the Toro is but we are trying to encourage them to use the the other the shuttles of taxi services and there is Aloha Motorsports and there's bike Maui or other rental options for the visitors
0: so how does this pilot project work what did HVV put up to get this thing launched and then how will it work out once you get past the two weeks
3: Yes, we did put up funding to help subsidize the program and uh, along working with the Hawaii Tourism Authority and the Department of Transportation and and the certainly Polynesian Adventure Tours. So the Maui Visitors Bureau is limited on funds, so we're going to see how it goes for the next two weeks, and hopefully there'll be enough interest. That uh, that the partners that are in it, like Polynesian Adventure Tours, will be able to continue it, you know, based on the revenue that they get from the passengers buying the tickets.
0: What did the Visitors Bureau put up to launch this? We put up thirty-six
3: thousand dollars.
0: And then, how often are those shuttles running?
3: There's one that departs at 2 o'clock, and four thirty to drop off passengers in West Maui, and then there's a the second coach that leaves the airport daily at eleven fifteen. 115 and 3.15 to drop off the passengers in South Maui. And there is also the opportunity for the visitors to book the return trip to Kahului Airport through the concierge at the resort where they're staying or online at the Paliad website. And in speaking with Paliad, they said that's picking up nicely too. There may even be more uh, passengers going back to the airport once they see that that's an option. So, is there a flat rate for this service for the West Maui? It's fifty dollars one way for adults, thirty-five dollars for children four to twelve, and free for three and under. And passengers heading to Wailea, thirty-five dollars one way for adults, twenty for children four to twelve, and free for children three and under. There's a strong interest in, and in I think with you know from the pandemic, a lot of people want to travel because they've been at home for quite a while, so we, we certainly understand the, the excitement to come to Maui and, and the other Hawaiian islands based on that, uh, on what they've gone through this past year. So the other thing that uh, that we're also promoting is our Malama Hawaii program, and this is where we're giving visitors the opportunity to give back uh, when they do come to the islands, and there's programs where you help out with beach cleanups, with, with different there's Oluwalu and Honakobai where you're helping to restore the, the land by weeding and planting trees and a number of the resorts are offering incentives like a fifth night free or discounts to participate in this program. So we're we're just we're trying to bring in the visitor who's mindful when they when they arrive. Um,
0: do they get a ride to those sites too?
3: By <laughs> <I> right. <write. laughs> exactly. <laughs> very good point <laughs> so, you're working on that <laughs> right yeah working on that but, uh, in any case so we're you know our, our efforts now are really to help kind of work with the community and, and understand that the impact that, uh, that the visitors are having on the community and and figure out ways that uh, everyone can work together and sort of take care or malama the, the island.
0: That was Leanne uh, Pletcher, Director of Public Relations and Marketing for the Maui Visitors and Convention Bureau.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to Homa Summer Nights with live music, bites, beverages, and art-making workshops on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions
6: explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
5: Hi, I'm Greg Lavoie, author of Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about reclaiming our passion and vitality. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai. Celebrating 60 years, featuring Daikin Air Conditioners. Learn more about Daikin at CostcoHawaii.com.
0: It's now time for our reality check segment with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. We hear more about that lawsuit filed by a whistleblower who says she was fired from her job at the State Health Department. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us this morning. Good morning. How are you?
4: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, uh, remind our viewers about uh, uh, this whistleblower, Jennifer Smith.
4: Sure. So if our viewers or listeners may recall... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jennifer Smith uh, is a virologist who spoke up about the Department of Health's need for more COVID-19 contact tracers last year. Now, this was, you know, we're still in a pandemic, but this was in the midst of uh, one of the scariest times of the pandemic in July and August when cases were really skyrocketing, um, disparities were worsening. Um, There was just a lot of concern over how the the Department of Health was handling um, contact tracing at the time. And what Jennifer Smith did was that she was among, uh, you know, people working on the response and and she reached out to uh, not only the um, union for government workers, but also uh, politicians like um, Josh Green, um, Tulsi Gabbard. And to get the word out, basically, that there was not enough staffing um, and that, um, you know, the you know, what the Department of Health leaders were saying in terms of the number of contact tracers working on this um, did not reflect the reality on the ground. And so um, she kind of made headlines last year when she did that. And also, not only did she speak up, but she also got suspended temporarily. So just within weeks after uh, appearing at a press conference um, with Tulsi Gabbard talking about this, she, uh, you know, was suspended with pay, Um, and this was between this was on September 4th and she was reinstated on October 28th so since then she's been working at DOH but the story we're talking about today is that most recently she's been terminated and now she wants her job back
0: so I think people may have been surprised that you know they didn't realize that she had been let go
4: yeah I didn't realize that either until I saw her lawsuit and um she, one thing she notes is that when she was reinstated on October 28th, she was actually reassigned um, to documenting influenza cases, so rather than working on COVID. Um, and she also says that she her workload was reduced to nearly nothing. So according to her, um, you know, she she was kind of sidelined and she she believes at least the lawsuit kind of describes how she believes that this um being let go is is retaliation for her speaking up and she wants not only her job back she wants back pay and she wants an apology
0: well now uh her bosses uh did step down from their positions right dr sarah park the epidemiologist and bruce Mm -hmm. anderson also uh, stepped down from his position as state health director
4: Yes. Yeah, so the, um, Sarah Park was the um, state epidemiologist last year, and Bruce Anderson was leading Department of Health. Um, but there are still a health department officials um, who um, she's working under, um, who she is alleging this re- retaliation from. So Sarah Campbell and Danette uh, Tomiyasu. she said she met with them on May 21st and alleges that they denied her her due process rights um, as a union member and also says that they gave vague reasons for terminating her. And so unfortunately, we can't get their side of the story because when I reached out to the Department of Health to ask them to comment, to speak with me about this, because it's a lawsuit, they, you know, said that they had to refer further questions to the Attorney General's office, but they did confirm that Smith is no longer with the agency.
0: Yeah, and you know the the whole thing with contact tracing, you know, was a a, a problem because it was around that time that the numbers just started to soar, uh, so that was a a, a real concern uh, mm-hmm. that the department may have been just caught flat-footed responding to the the, the spike.
4: Yeah, that was one of the, the central debates last year was how the Department of Health was handling the uh, contact tracing, if they were handling it well, and that leadership shakeup. I know it, it in, did lead to improvements, or um, especially in terms of response for um, Pacific Islander communities. Um, but it, it does seem that there is still something afoot at the at the agency, and unfortunately, because this is considered a personnel issue and now a lawsuit. Um, You know, we don't have a lot more from the department explaining kind of why they decided to go this direction.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, a big question mark then as to, uh, you know, what the department's uh, position is and and the cause for termination. Um, uh, But we haven't heard yet, you know, when this is going to be assigned a a hearing, I guess, because it's just been filed. All right. Okay. Well, keep us posted. Thanks so much, Anita.
4: Thanks so much, Catherine. Bye-bye.
0: That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's reality check. Uh, to read the full story and the updates later, visit Sybilbeat.org. Surfing will have its moment in the sun during the Tokyo Olympics but we're taking the time today to look back at its history and the woman's role in the sport. Jim Campton is the president of the California Surf Museum. His new book, Woman on Waves, is described as a cultural history of surfing from ancient goddesses to Hawaiian queens to Malibu movie stars and millennial champions. We caught up with him to find out what makes this book different.
2: We had thought that we might do an exhibit on the museum This was about 10 years ago actually 2000 uh, I think the exhibit opened in 2009 and then we started work on it a couple of years earlier and we spent a couple of years doing the research on it for the exhibit and I had wanted to do some women's swimsuits through the years as well because I thought that would attract a wider audience which we're always looking for as you know with any museum trying to uh trying to widen the audience interest and so we ended up finding old woolen um, suits that women had worn back in the 20s. And then we found that Janssen had this huge collection of really fabulous swimsuits from all the different periods of their business. So we did a a really fun thing with a lot of of swimsuits as well as the sort of history of the women's surfing. And it kind of gave me a framework, I guess, you know, that I could work from, understanding the whole history of women's surfing, which is essentially the history of surfing because the queens and, and even the goddesses before the queens in Hawaii were all women, and in Hawaii, the, the, at least in the surfing area, women were very equal to the men and often even won the contests, partially because you know style had a lot more to do with it than women have incredible style and were very elegant on the waves. So there's a huge sort of oral history of Polynesian surfing, and in fact, the oldest surfboard that has been discovered was found in a tomb in Hawaii that they traced back to a Hawaiian princess in the 1640s. I've certainly spent time in the Bishop Museum. I have several friends there that have been very helpful. And there's over 700 women in the book and there are about 120 interviews. And a significant number of those were, were women from Hawaii. And going back as far as I could find women who were still around and all their stories were just so interesting. So it took me about two years of really doing hard work and trying to get to original sources either from people, like I was talking about just now, of of women that are still alive, um, are still active uh, in surfing too, to the sort of original sources of of newspapers and periodicals and letters of the time. And the Internet is just such a huge boost to that because before before that, I, I don't think even 10 years ago, I don't think there would have been any way I could have Found out as much as I did, just simply because the the material has now been entered on the internet, and you can and you can do a deep dive and just drill down until you find what you're looking for, and and you can also just sort of surf along, finding something, and then you know that takes you to another place and another place, and pretty soon you have something that's really unique or undiscovered.
0: You know, the other day I just happened to pick up a book about Rel Sun. You know, Uh and I just remembered, you know, I was just so in awe of her skill as a surfer.
2: Rell actually was a really, really good friend of ours. We traveled with Rell to Tahiti when she was doing her hula dancing. We traveled to Mexico with her when I was showing her sort of, you know, the Baja experience. You know, we babysat her daughter, Jan, who is still really good friends with us. Yeah, Rell was a real, real friend, of course, to everyone. And I have a whole chapter on Rell in the book because she's such a significant figure both in Hawaiian surfing and, and just in surfing in general. You know, you think that Rel's your best friend, and then, you you know, when you went to a memorial, there were 3,000 other people who thought they were her best yes. friends. So, uh, you know, that was just who Rel was, and we loved her. She was She was a very special person.
0: You know, the museum there in California, I think you folks have the Prince's Boards, the Redwood Boards, on display there,
2: we do. We have an Alaya um, from from the era. We're not sure whether that was a woman's or a, or a man's, but it's definitely from the eighteen hundreds. So that's a real great great board. We have. We also have a Duke Hanamoku board. We have one of Rails boards. Um, so we have Margot Oberg's boards. We have Lane Beachley's boards. You know, we have most of the women world champions we have a, a board of theirs, either one that they won a world title on, or at least one that was significant.
0: And so it sounds like. Uh, you know, your your whole life you've been surfing. Uh, tell us about your early memories of, of riding waves.
2: Well, I actually learned to surf on Guam and uh, at Talafofo Bay, uh, which is the only sort of Waikiki-like spot on the island. The rest of the island is surrounded by reefs. It's one of the only rivers that flows into you know into the ocean on Guam and sort of kills a coral reef so it's a little bit like Alamoana where there's a, a break in it. So I learned to surf there and then when we moved back to California, I continued to surf here and and then went traveling after school, kind of all around the world surfing. At that time there wasn't any circuit. So the only way you kind of really kind of earned your merit badges was by going to, you know, these these surf spots in Central America or in Indonesia or in Australia or Hawaii or you know on and on France I spent a long time in France and Spain and Morocco so yeah, it was, a, it was a fabulous experience, and then I ended up getting the job at Surfer Magazine as the associate editor, and then I became the editor, and then I became the publisher of the magazine for a number of years. And then later, I worked for Transworld Publications, which started Transworld Surfing and Transworld Trans World Surf. And then I worked for Quicksilver on what was called The Crossing Boat, which was the Indies trader went around the world exploring for surf for a four-year stint, and then I was the media director at Billabong for about 10 or 11 years. So, yeah, I've had a wonderful career, <laughs> a very lucky one. I consider myself one of the lucky people of being able to do what I've wanted to do and love to do my whole my whole career.
0: It is really amazing because surfing is going to have its moment over at the Olympics this year in Japan.
2: Yes, at Chiba. That was a place that actually was on the circuit um, back along many years ago and it's actually got quite good surf if there's a swell it's a very legitimate place to have a contest
0: we've got Carissa Moore you know on our surf team John John Florence I mean it's just wonderful surfing history that we're going to experience you know on this uh, world stage there at the Olympics you know it's just that I guess nice to see the sport progress
2: yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, one of the things that's really, really interesting uh, with, the, with the women right now is just how far they've come in terms of, of progression and performance. In 2020, the largest wave surfed by a man or a woman was surfed by a woman and a Brazilian gal. But the really interesting thing was is that the second biggest wave ridden, was ridden by a woman, Justine Dupont, from France, so, you know, 2021, we've had a lot of, uh, we, you know, with the, the, the COVID hit. and We haven't had a lot of opportunity for those kind of things. Matt, um, Maya Gabiera, who's from Brazil, surfed the largest wave. And Justine DuPont surfed the second largest wave of 2020, which is a pretty, uh, pretty amazing feat.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, we've seen now uh, uh, the surf prize money, you know, go up for women. You know the yep. World Surf League. You they, know, has they, jumped they made in there. It
2: equal, yeah, they made it equal, and and uh, the, the the WSL deserves deserves credit for being one of the very first sports in the world to give women uh, equal pay. So that's a, a big step forward as well.
0: We just recently featured Kayla Kennedy. Uh, you know, she was a, an invitee, I think, to the Eddie Cow, which unfortunately didn't go. Uh, lots of women making their mark out there on big waves.
2: Absolutely, and KK deserves. Uh, I mean, she's she's another good friend of mine, and so deserving. She's uh, she has everything it takes, and uh, really a really an outstanding surfer, and uh, and a great representative of the sport.
0: Any plans for a little book signing tour <laughs> and surf tour?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, uh, I'm planning on I'm planning on being in Hawaii in November and I have a number of, of um, book signings uh, planned already. And uh, there's a there's a huge interest in this and I you know, I'm I'm really thrilled about that and I'm not saying it for any commercial reasons, although I'm I'm thrilled that it, it, it is that the, 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 the first edition is sold out. Um, and that's before the book is even on sale. So, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that it's getting the attention it does because the whole point of me writing the book was to give these women their due. You know, over the last 70 years since, you know, sort of modern surfing has come into being, um, women have, have had the short shrift. You know, they've, they've had to struggle to compete and to just be accepted. And now that that is... I mean, there's a long ways to go, but now that that is really making progress, I just feel like it's a great time to celebrate all these amazing women from the you know from from the 1600s to the 1920s to uh, you know to uh, the 1950s and 1960s to today.
0: That was Jim Kempton, author of the book *Woman on Waves: A Cultural History of Surfing*, which is out today and available at Barnes and Noble and Amazon.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. There's a
7: massive shift in employment numbers, and it has to do with people leaving their jobs. More than 4 million Americans quit their jobs in April, a 20-year high, and that helped put job
5: vacancies also at a 20-year high. So what's going on? We'll talk with our money ladies, Michelle Singletary and Rana Faruhar, about the new labor gap. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. That's on the next On Point.
2: Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queens Health Systems, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org.
0: With the start of filming for the new ncis hawaii television series in recent weeks tv and film production in our state continues to thrive as COVID restrictions loosen it's a trend that started as far back as october 2020 when hbo ordered a new series set on maui from writer director mike white the industry veteran is best known for comedies school of rock and a nacho libre but uh, has several dramatic series and films to his credit the Conversations Russell Subiona got the opportunity to talk with White about filming during a pandemic and his connection to our islands.
6: The goal is to disappear behind our masks as pleasant interchangeable helpers. It's tropical kabuki. Aloha, a happy beer. be
5: We're on our honeymoon.
6: You're such valued guests. Welcome to the White Lotus. (laughs) The new HBO series White Lotus is a smart and funny character study that focuses on several mainland guests at a fictitious Maui boutique hotel and the problems they think they have. It was shot on the Valley Isle at the end of 2020, just as our state was getting a handle on managing life during the pandemic. I was interested in how they were able to overcome the challenges of shooting under pandemic restrictions. Here's the series writer and director, Mike White.
7: So HBO came to me because they'd had a lot of issues with productions shutting down because of COVID. So they wanted, I, they came to like a couple different creators, I guess, and I was one of them where they were hoping that I could write something that was contained, that it had a, a small footprint as far as the resources and shooting all in one location. And at the time I was like very frustrated and You know, depressed like everybody else, stuck in my house during the quarantine and watching the news and pulling my hair out. So I was like, all right, I can figure this out. And I, you know, because I've, I know a lot of people who live in Hawaii and I've spent a lot of time in Hawaii, I knew that there was lots of hotels that were just totally closed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that would be amazing is if we could take over one of these hotels and maybe get people back to work and also create a bubble that was safe. So that was the, kind of inspiration a little bit. And then we ended up shooting at the Four Seasons in Wailea on Maui. And it was, yeah, it was an incredible experience because when we got there, it was just the, at the very beginning, it was just me and my two producers. Uh And we had the whole hotel to ourselves. It was like the Hawaiian shining. It was like, it was a little crazy to have the Four Seasons all to ourselves. So we shot from October, end of October through Christmas. And it was kind of like, I don't know, I felt like I cracked the code, the quarantine code. Yeah. was like, when we were there, I was like, I can't believe we figured out how to do this because it was so
6: beautiful. Yeah. So you wrote the script for the series right before you guys started production?
7: Yeah, they came to me in beginning of August. Wow, And we were shooting by, yeah, October. So I had to write all the scripts and prep the show, cast the show, all of yeah. that in the span of uh, two and a half months, pretty much. It was It was wow. very, I would not have done it under any other circumstances, <laughs> but I was just so eager to like just see people and kind of collaboration like that, that I was willing to figure out how to do it even under those like intense parameters.
6: Securing the location and hiring a crew and creating protocols for the set was just the first step in this huge undertaking. Finding actors willing to fly to Hawaii and go through quarantine and stay in the bubble for a few months also presented a unique set of obstacles to overcome.
7: I think we were lucky because HBO wanted to consider the show at the time, they don't think of it this way now, but as a kind of an experimental show because usually shows go through these long, you know, gestations of development and you know there's a lot of hurdles you have to jump and because it just went, immediately went into production they didn't even have all the scripts it was kind of a, a unusual circumstance and so they didn't want to give us a lot of money to go to cast it seemed like everybody that we wanted to uh, approach were not working and like eager to work and, and definitely seemed to want to work on something that felt like, you know, a good character study and, and some of the stuff that they liked about the script. So, so we were just really lucky to get this, the cast that we got.
6: The series is very much an ensemble, and there are several recognizable faces in the cast. Veteran actors Jennifer Coolidge, Steve Zahn, and Connie Britton, to name a few. Local boy Kekoa Kekumano has a supporting role. He had a recurring role on Hawaii Five-O and played young Arthur Curry, Jason Momoa's character in the 2018 Aquaman film. Veteran actress Jolene Purdy also played a role. I talked to her about her experience and her tie to Hawaii.
8: Um, magical.
6: Yeah.
8: We, they shut down the entire hotel for us. Everyone that had a finger on the show was living there together, quarantined, couldn't leave. No ins, no outs, just there. And so we really got to hang out with each other at the pools, at the, you know, this grand, fabulous hotel. I mean, we had to wear masks and we were COVID tested every every (laughs) three times a week and we had to maintain distance and we had those crazy alien looking shield.
6: Did you feel a little short change? Lonnie kind of disappears after the first pep. So did you feel like, you know, oh, that's it? That's all I get?
8: I mean, I kind of knew going in that's what it was Uh going to be, but I didn't have a callback. I didn't anything. So the first time I met Mike White was Mm -hmm. when I was shooting, and I was on set with him, and we did one take, and he goes, Damn. I wish you were in this more. Like, why? Why? You're so funny. Why? And I was like, I don't know. You're the Reiner.
6: This is why I'm so excited to to talk to you. I first noticed you when you appeared on Orange is the New Black as the Hawaiian character Stephanie Hapakuka. Mm-hmm. It stood out to me because you don't see too many Hawaiian characters portrayed outside of stories that take place in Hawaii, let alone in a series set in a women's prison. And then I smiled when I saw you in the trailer for the White Lotus because I thought to myself, "Hey, there's that actress who played a Hawaiian in one series, and now she's actually in Hawaii." And when I mentioned this to Mike White, he told me that you have a connection to Hawaii. So I, I'm interested now to know what your what your connection is. I do.
8: Um, so my grandfather, born and raised in Pearl City, he's actually oh, okay. so he's at the Punch Bowl now. So we have that's the connection that I have. He spoke such thick pigeon. Even Uh when I asked him to tell me things, I couldn't quite understand all of it. Uh Yeah, so whenever I have to put a little pigeon on, I just always think of my grandpa and what he sounded like.
6: One thing viewers may pick up when watching The White Lotus is the strength of the writing, the plot lines, the characters, the dialogue, and the unique use of Hawaiian music. They are a big part of what makes the series unique and interesting. I asked Mike White about it, You wrote some very complex characters with some redeeming traits and some particularly awful ones. Who was the most difficult for you to write and who seemed to just write themselves?
7: It's funny because I think there's a little bit of me in all of the characters. And I think the easiest, embarrassingly enough, is there's the character Shane who's the guy who's mad he didn't get his room. This
6: is the wrong room. We're paying for the honeymoon suite. I don't have a record of you booking that room. Right uh, My mother booked the room. You guys should call my mother.
7: And it's like, and I feel like it's like at first you feel like it's a real farcical type of character. Who this guy is very entitled. He's you know he, he and he's obsessed with the idea that he got screwed over on the room that he and that he should have a better suite. And I and in the meantime he's ruining the honeymoon that he's there to have with his his new wife. And I just feel like there's times where I feel like I am that guy, even though I, I'm i embarrassed to admit it and I hate to think about it. Is that like, oh no, I paid for this. And da-da-da. it's like the, the justice of it. Like it's just, it's not fair. And then you realize who cares? Like you're there to have a vacation. Like it doesn't matter which room you have. Like it doesn't matter. Like it's like the, the that you can get caught up in these little slights or these little things that you think you need. And in the end you're missing the big picture. and. And so, in a weird way, that that character was very easy to write. I think um, I think the more complex, like the character of Paula, who is the girl who's on the on the trip with the family and is observing yeah. them. I feel like that character is also somewhat like me, but I think that was the, a trickier character to write because I think her, you know, like. I wanted, I wanted to really feel her and, and feel why she, you know, she, I don't want to spoil it, my own show, but like, she ends up doing something that's a little uh, transgressive. And I really want to, wanted the audience to really understand the reasoning that went behind some of the things that she does later in the show.
6: One of the most interesting things about the series is your choice of music. The story doesn't focus primarily on Hawaiian characters or on Hawaii itself, but you use a lot of Hawaiian music, or at least music with Hawaiian lyrics. What motivated you to include Hawaiian music the way you did?
7: Well, like we wanted to create this kind of bipolar soundscape in a sense. Uh, like I don't know a better way to say that, but like using Hawaiian music in these more kind of warmer, brighter moments. Because I think there is something just so warm, naturally warm and kind of soulful about the Hawaiian music. And at the same time, wanted to create a lot of anxiety with the music in other moments. And so the score itself has elements that I feel like are have a tropical, like nervous DJ (laughs) quality. And so like we were kind of flipping back from these kind of like these, you know, steel, slacky guitar, stuff and then going into this like much more nervous but tropical anxiety music and I and I and the hope was to like kind of play with that sort of you know manic depressive kind of feeling.
6: It's hard for anyone who spent time in our islands to leave without having been impacted by its beauty and people and if you're lucky you also develop a love for the land and the culture. Mike White owns a home on Kauai and has brought several of his productions to our state. I asked him about his connection to Hawaii.
7: When I was younger, I came to Kauai with my family. My dad was a minister and he had friends from his seminary who lived in Hawaii. And so when I was young, it was the first place that I went to that wasn't home. And it was the first experience that I had where you, you realize, oh, people live somewhere else than where you live. And also the culture is different than the culture you, you, you're from. And so my first formative experience of a, of a different culture was the Hawaiian culture. And of course the Hawaiian culture is so specific. It's so unique and beautiful. And it started a love affair that I've always had of being fascinated by Hawaiian culture and, And so as I became an adult and was able to get a place there, it started a deeper relationship that I have to wanting to understand the the culture more, the islands more. And so I always, (laughs) the last couple of years, like whenever I've made anything, I've tried to bring the production to Hawaii at some point, whether it was enlightened or broad status, we came here. And, and then obviously White Lotus, we made everything here. And so with each time I come, I feel like I fall in love with it more, but I'm also more humbled by the history of the islands. And it's a relationship that I, I, I'm still a novice, but I feel like I'm gonna hopefully have a lifetime relationship with the islands.
6: Everyone, sorry, I don't know
7: why I just stood up. That family is crazy.
4: The mother is a bitch and the daughter is a
5: bitch.
7: These guests are crazy. Money money money. money money money. Paula was disturbed by the entertainment. The hula dancing? Look, obviously it shouldn't kill people, steal their land, and then make them dance. Everybody knows that.
0: That was writer director Mike White and actress Jolene Purdy speaking with HPR's Brussels Subiono. The new series, The White Lotus, debuts on HBO this Sunday. <laughs> That is it for today. Tomorrow marks the centennial of the Hawaiian Homelands Act. We have a call-in show scheduled. Are you on homestead land or are you on the wait list? What are your thoughts as we mark this date? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tune in tomorrow for more of the conversation.